Our reading for this morning is from Genesis 18, verses 16 to 23. Hear God's word. Then men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham to what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Laura. Well, there may not be another story in the whole Bible that is associated more with God's judgment and wrath than the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction. Even more than the flood, honestly. I mean, at least with the flood, we have cute animals and we have rainbows, right? We've sort of domesticated that story a little bit. There's none of that here. It's literally the fire and brimstone passage in the Bible with this question that Laura just sort of left us with at the end from Abraham. God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a big question. And if we want to have any hope of answering it with any kind of justice, we need to go to God in prayer, as we always do, before we undertake the hearing and the speaking of God's word, let's ask for his help in that task. So if you would, pray with me. God, we want to respond rightly to this hard passage in this ancient text, not with our own wisdom or understanding, but with the wisdom and the understanding and the conviction that, that only you can give. So by the power of your spirit, God, we pray Open our hearts and minds and wills to your word this morning. Where I say my own things, I I pray they would fall away quickly, but where I speak your word after you, God, do the work of renewing us. We have good good news this morning. It's loaded with power to save everyone who believes it. We believe that's true, and so grant us faith this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us have heard it at some point, uh, maybe even this morning as you were getting ready. Uh, I don't know what your life was like this morning. Kids, I know you've said this before. I've probably even heard some of you say this before. This universal phrase, we don't really outgrow it ever. It's this cry of the human heart. It's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah, I've, I've figured out how to put gifts in our sermon slides, so just get ready for that. Can't promise anything for the future there. But we all know what this is like. This sort of cry of the heart. Kids, you get it. I mean, sometimes life just isn't fair, right? You're just honest enough to say it out loud. The rest of us, we just complain or we pout. We get angry. We get passive aggressive. We shake our fists in the air like 
If we were in control, we'd do it better. Because often, it's not fair, it's just code. It's code for, I don't like that. I don't like this. It's usually the case in our family. I'm sort of trying to reason with a toddler. That's, that's, that goes well. But sometimes this outcry, it holds a little more water. Like maybe life really isn't fair. Sometimes it's more than I don't like that and more like that isn't right. It's the cry of the overlooked or the down and out or the under-resourced or the marginalized, the vulnerable, the people in our lives, the people in this room maybe this morning who have a case to make for injustice, real injustice. Because we live in a broken and disintegrated world. Remember, we've been in Genesis for a while. This is not the way that it was meant to be. God meant for us to live in a very integrated whole world, but it's not that way. It's disintegrated. It's broken apart. And sometimes it's not fair is, is the only response that we can muster. And you can hear the echoes of this in the question that Abraham poses to God we just heard read, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, you're, you're a just person, right? Will you really let the righteous be caught up in the destruction of the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It says that a couple verses later. And it's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is yes. The judge of all the earth, earth will will be just. Abraham's not questioning God's character. I don't want to do that this morning. But the question I do want to put to the text, which I do often when we're in a narrative like this, let's have a question ahead of us, in front of us, as we engage the text. Here's what I want to ask. It's not, will the judge of all the earth do what is just, but how? How does God carry out justice in, a, in an unjust world? What does God do in the pursuit of justice? How will he do what is right in a world that's filled with so much wrong? So we'll, we'll wade through this narrative together and arrive at an answer to that question. But first, I want to remember where we've been, where we left off specifically last week. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 18. So we're going to be this morning. And if you remember, last week we left at three visitors uh, at Abraham's tent. And somehow, we don't really know how exactly, but one of them is God. And Abraham wakes up from like an afternoon nap. Three visitors, one of them is God. It's crazy. It's a crazy scene. But Abraham welcomes them in with this lavish feast as one does in that time if you're righteous. And in the course of their stay, we're told that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. The promise will be fulfilled their bodies as good as dead. I love, I love the way that that says that. There's no physical way they can have children, and, but it doesn't matter because nothing is too incredible for God. That's the, that was the big point from last week. It turns out to be this huge moment for Abraham and God in their relationship. And now they're on the road to Sodom. They've left Abraham's tent. And God, he's, again, he's some, somehow he's there God turns to Abraham and says, 
There's more you should know. It's actually this funny. God's like, should I tell him? Should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? Yes, I'm going to tell him. He's my guy. And here's what he says, verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God's heard this outcry against these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants to see it for himself, what's happening. Not because he can't see it, like he doesn't have a good view. Kids, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to get on your tippy toes to see something because you're just not quite tall enough to see it. God doesn't ever have to stand on his tippy toes. That's not what happens here. He can see just fine what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, but sometimes he wants to get up close and personal to see it for himself, for our sake. And that's what's happening here. It's incredible. God wants to see the injustice for himself. This word outcry, it's literally the the shrieks of torment of the oppressed. That's what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's heard their cries. He comes down in a display of personal care. The judge of all the earth wants to hear the case against Sodom for himself. So what is going on in Sodom? I'm sure you've been wondering that. So let's leave Abraham for a moment. Just kind of skip through that, those verses in 18 and go to, to 19 verse 1. These two angelic messengers leave. They go to Sodom, and this is what it says, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. So God's messengers, his angels, go to the heart of the city. They're ready to stay in the square at Sodom. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, who settled there, sees them coming. He goes out to the gate, meets them there, insists that they stay in his home. Like his uncle, like Abraham, just a chapter before, Lot shows them this incredible hospitality. The parallels between the opening chapters of, or verses of 19 and 18 are there intentionally to show, to surface the hospitality of the righteous. And we're told before they can lay down, all of Sodom comes knocking at the door. Not to welcome them, but to abuse them. It's just this awful scene, truly, like something out of a horror film. All the men in the town, young and old, trying to force themselves on God's messengers. Now, so often when we, th- when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, there's one issue that takes center stage, which is that of, of sexual lust, specifically same sex. And this has become one of the Old Testament proof passages against those types of relationships and lifestyle decisions in the Bible. And there's definitely a distorted view of sexuality on display in this text. Jude picks it up later in the New Testament. And there are texts we could go to in the Old and the New 
to strengthen, to build a case for a biblical sexual ethic. But this, this actually isn't the text. Because that's not the focal point of this narrative. It's here, but it's not the main thing. This isn't an awful city because of its sexual perversion, not exclusively, not even primarily. Here's how Ezekiel speaks of Sodom's sin, which, which might be the only time anyone ever says, you know, Ezekiel really helps clear this up for us. <laughs> but here's what he says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. The outcry against this city is that it's arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned for the poor and the needy. Not primarily its distorted sexuality, but its lack of hospitality. That's the context here in chapters 18 and 19. This extravagant show of hospitality from Abraham and Lot, and then Sodom here. This lack of generous welcome. Isaiah says something similar. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's comparing God's people to these cities. Hear the word of the Lord, Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This language of hospitality and welcome to the stranger. That's what's in view. So Dr. Joshua Jipp, he's a a professor at Trinity in Chicago. He's written a book entitled Saved by Faith and Hospitality. I recommend it to you if you are interested in exploring more what biblical hospitality looks like. But he summarizes this account like this. He says, many Christians may assume they know exactly what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 is all about, sexual deviance. But in fact, Genesis 19 provides the negative counterpart to Abraham's hospitality, and it really makes the simple point, this is the the main point here, that God will judge societies and individuals that abuse the vulnerable stranger. Because you see, God cares about the generous welcome of strangers, the the care, care for the vulnerable, love for the other. Sodom violated those virtues, And the outcry prompts God's justice, his judgment. And as an aside, I'll go back to the story in a moment. But I think we would do well to push through our common conceptions of Sodom and listen to the outcry ourselves. Because I think there's a warning for us in this text, for all of us. As individuals, as a church, as citizens in this land, we should ask, are we... Are we in some way guilty of going the way of Sodom? When it comes to our greed, our pride, our excess, our care for the poor and the needy, are we extending the kind of generosity and welcome that pleases God? It's not hard for me to see these sins in my own heart. And it's not hard to see them in the social fabric of our country, which is pulling apart by the day. And we're so polarized on issues of care for the most vulnerable among us, our children. We're so polarized. 
the unborn in the womb, and the, the detained at the border, to, to name a couple of very live examples for us. Complex and messy and tragic. There are no simple solutions, and I'm not arguing that case this morning. But we are talking about, about more than just issues. We're talking about children without defense. And I'm afraid the outcry in our midst might not be too unlike the case against Sodom that stirs the heart and hand of God to judgment. But the point in, the, in these opening verses of chapter 19, it is clear. The case against Sodom is strong, and God is listening. He hears the outcry of the oppressed, the needs of the needy, the pain of the afflicted, and he goes right to it, to the city square. He goes to see it for himself. The judge of all the earth. And no one is rushing to the defense of this city. No one, that is, except for Abraham. Which is truly one of the most bizarre things in this story. Stay with me. Because more bizarre than anything happening in Sodom is what's taking place between Abraham and God. Jump back to verse 22. Two messengers, they go on to Sodom. God and Abraham hang back for this extended conversation Tim Keller points out it's actually the first extended prayer in the Bible where someone goes to God with requests. It's a unique exchange, the first of its kind, but there's actually even more going on than just sort of prayer here. In verse 23, we're told Abraham drew near to God, which means that Abraham, he's not just praying. He is, as as Keller says, he's priesting. To draw near, it's this technical term. It's a legal term for approaching the seat of the judge, going to the bench, like a defense attorney. And Abraham is defending the people of Sodom as a priest. Now, we may have certain images of priests or certain people come to mind, but the the most basic idea is someone who stands in the gap between God and humans, right? Like a bridge that's firmly planted on one side and the other to allow passage Between the two, a priest is one who can be in the presence of God and represent the people, right? And Abraham finds himself right smack dab in the middle between the judge of all the earth and the people of a region with a city that's worthy of destruction. That's the picture. Now, what would you expect him to do? What case do you think he should make to bring to the bench? He knows about Sodom. There's history there. He's heard the outcry himself, I'm sure. So he's, he asks to approach the bench. He draws near to God and he poses a question, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's his question to God. Right, here comes the defense for the righteous. He's bringing it, right? God, would you take out the righteous in your destruction of the wicked? That's what I would expect. That's what I expect him to do. Let's read on. It's fascinating exchange, starting in verse 24. It says this, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it, literally forgive it 
Hebrew, forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the, the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. What incredible boldness before the judge of all the earth. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive, spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham goes on. So this combination of confidence and humility before God. Talks him all the way down to 10. Jump to verse 32. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I'll speak just one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's the end of this exchange. And I've always thought it's fascinating. It's sort of back and forth, like they're at a farmer's market or something, right? It's a haggling together. But I've often missed the most incredible part of this, that Abraham is a priest, this legal counsel for the people. He is defending the city of Sodom. Not part of it. Not just the faithful few in the middle of it. Right, God, would you just save the, my family and I don't care what you do with the rest. No, he defends all of it, the whole city. Which knowing what we know about Sodom is crazy. So what's going on? Because it seems like Abraham is asking God to ignore the terrible things that are happening in Sodom. It, Abraham acknowledges that God is righteous. He values righteousness. He loves it. But then he asks God if he could spare, literally forgive a whole city based on the righteousness of a few. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He's exploring this question. Could the righteousness of a few cover the sins of many? And God's answer over and over and over again in this text is, yes. I played on a number of team sports growing up, uh, and easily my least favorite part of sports was the conditioning portion of practice. Now, I know, I know it's probably shocking to you. You look at me like, he's probably a sprinter, you know. <laughs> probably not. I dreaded, I dreaded, especially running lines in basketball practice. hated it. Not just because they were hard, but because we, we had timed lines. We, we had to run, you know, 10 of them, all of them in under 30 seconds. Something like that, which, you know, the first two, three, four, not a big deal. You get to eight, nine, 10, and it's pretty tough. And we wouldn't finish. The, everyone on the team had to do it, or else you just keep running. If just one person failed to finish under 30 seconds, you had to run again and again and again. And eventually, of course, the outcry would come. Coach, come on. Just code for, this isn't fair. Why do we have to keep running? Because Andrew can't make, can't make it. There's a similar story in Joshua where the sin of one man, Achan, causes God's people to lose a battle. The sin of one holds the whole community responsible. Which we look at that story, at least I always have, and say, that's not, that's not fair. How could God do that? What about all those innocent people who did it right? I mean, it really pokes at especially our individual, kind of individualistic sensibilities as Westerners. To us, corporate responsibility for wrong, it doesn't seem right, not just. 
It's not fair. But that's precisely what Abraham is arguing for, corporate responsibility. Except here he's arguing for it in the reverse. He says, could the righteousness of a few be enough to cover the sins of many? How many people have to make it under 30 seconds for us to all get to stop? Right? That's the idea. And he stops the discussion at 10. 10 righteous people. God says, I will forgive the whole city for 10. And Abraham discovers something really astounding. In God's economy, a righteous few can cover the wickedness of many. But, of course, the city is destroyed. It turns out there aren't 10 righteous people in Sodom, and God brings judgment on the wicked. He hears the cries of the oppressed, and he moves against evil, even as he saves Lot and his family, kind of, barely. They're really saved in spite of themselves. Lot has to be like physically pulled out of the city. His sons-in-law don't take him seriously, and they're caught up in it. His wife, in the last moment, turns back. I wish we had more time to spend here. I really do. I mean, I love talking about judgment as much as the next person. That was a joke. I don't love talking about judgment. But we need, we need to go back to the end of this exchange between God and Abraham. Because they stop at 10. God moves on. Abraham goes home. And it's, it's not enough. Or the city goes down in judgment. Abraham's priesting falls short. He doesn't do it. And the reader is left wondering, at least I have been left wondering, could he have pressed for more? I mean, why stop there? Why not five? Why not three, which is what God actually does, saves three of them? Or why not one? You know, maybe he miscounted. It's like a lot. His, how many, I can't remember how many daughters he has, sons in law. No, ten. Let's do ten. All right, that's got to be enough. Maybe he stopped because he thought he's already been pressing his luck, right? I just got to stop on the head with God, the judge of all the earth. Or maybe he thought even if he got down to Lot, just one, well, it's Lot. He's a mess. He offers, I mean, in this story, he offers his own daughters to the men of Sodom, which is unthinkable. I mean, Lot is only relatively righteous himself. So Abraham doesn't go there. He stops at 10. But, but what, if, what if he had? What do you think God would say? God, would you forgive this entire city, this entire wicked city, worthy of destruction, would you forgive this entire city for the righteousness of one? Well, the rest of the Bible tells the answer to the story. The answer is a resounding yes. Right? In fact, God says, I'd save the entire world for the righteousness of one. If it's the right one. Not Lot. He's only relatively righteous. Not even Abraham, as great as he was. Nor any of the prophets or priests that follow them in this, in this story of redemption, this big God story. It's way better than that. Right, this story is so incredible. God himself, in the person of Jesus, 
he comes down. It's much the same way that he enters in back in this story in Genesis 19. God comes down and he himself lives the truly righteous life needed to save the world. And then, because justice demands it, he himself takes on the judgment necessary for justice, for sin. He is the priest and the payment. God's mercy and justice and love and grace all come together at the cross of Jesus. It's beautiful. And then we're told he, he raised on the third day and he lives to always plead our case. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 says, He is able to save completely any who draw near to God through him. Literally, any who approach the bench through Jesus. He is able to save any who approach God because he always lives to intercede for us. And Jesus Christ always gets what he asks for. His defense is perfect. The case is airtight, right? He's always making intercession for you and me at the bench. So our question, how does God carry out justice in an unjust world? It's this. He covers the wickedness of the world with the righteousness of one, Jesus the Christ, the promised one. And it's the most unfair thing in all the world. There's nothing more unfair than this. That God himself would come and, and pay the penalty for us. And it's why the gospel of God's grace towards us is, is the best news in all the world. I want to leave us with two steps. From this story, from the whole story, the big God story, of, of God's pursuit of us, his coming towards us. They're really simple, but very powerful. First, stand behind the defense of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you were saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Don't try to make any other case before God. You and I will never stand before the judge of all the earth on our own defense. I Believe me, I try to do enough good to make myself presentable and acceptable before God, but it's never enough. You will always fall short. You will fall in the end. You can't, and you don't have to. Jesus offers it freely. If you haven't trusted Jesus, if you're here this morning, and you haven't trusted Jesus with your life, I'm pleading with you, stand behind his defense. Come talk to me. I want to talk to you about that. When Jesus sent his disciples into the world to proclaim this coming kingdom, he said that those who rejected their message would fare worse than Sodom and Gomorrah on the last day. Because there's no other defense before the judge of all the earth other than Jesus the Christ. So stand with him. Second, is this, plead with God on behalf of others. Like Abraham in his humble confidence before God, plead for the salvation of others on account of Jesus' defense. Because if you are in Christ, then you get to join 
the rest of his body, the church, not just to pray for others, but to priest for them in the name of Jesus. The Apostle Peter calls the whole church this royal priesthood. We believe we are a part of this priesthood of all believers. God invites us to intercede for others. We can, do, we can do what Abraham wasn't able to do because Jesus accomplished what no one else could. So as priests, we can humbly advocate for everyone on account of Jesus. Who are those people for you in your life? This was the, a convicting moment for me this week. Who are the people that I know, I know that they don't know Jesus? And yet days and weeks and months and years go by and I'm not pleading for their salvation. And a perfectly good defense is right there for them. Who are those people for you? I want to leave us with these words from Hebrews 4. Sarah read them earlier. Just let them wash over you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near, approach the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. God, we, even now, just acknowledge that you are the judge of all the earth and will do what is right and just. And can, in fact, put all of our hope in that, that you have done precisely that in Jesus. That if we stand with him, there is no judgment left for us. Help us believe that this morning and not try to plead our own case. Help us believe that to the point where we plead on behalf of others that you would save them. God, we thank you that in your mercy you call us sons and daughters. We can approach you as a father, as a just judge, as the one who sees us and only sees the righteousness of your son. We praise you for that truth this morning. May it change the way we live, the way we stand before you, the way we interact with the watching world and those around us. Continue to change our hearts and minds this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.